0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. My name is Jeff Poteet and I get to serve here on staff as one of the pastors this week, uh, Pastor Phil has the opportunity to be with his kids and grandkids in Atlanta, uh, spending time with them, and so I get the opportunity to share God's word with you today. If you're watching us online, we're so grateful that you're there. And in the Cross Point Center, we're excited for what God is continuing to do as he brings people here to our campus, and we have the opportunity to minister the gospel to them. Now, as we conclude our series this week called The Elephant in the Room, we're going to talk about a topic that's being talked about and conversed about in virtually every room in the country, Uh, whether it is in the boardroom or the workroom of your local business, uh, whether it's in the classroom of your local high school, middle school, or even elementary school, whether it is in your own living room or dining room, the conversation that we are gonna talk about today is the one that centers around gender and sexuality. What does God's word say to us about this. Now, for many of us, historically, this conversation has been out there, right? We hear on the news about bakers or photographers who are involved in lawsuits because they won't go beyond what they believe their convictions allow in these areas. Uh, We hear about people that maybe have been fired from their jobs in the school system because they wouldn't use a particular set of pronouns for a child or for those that might have been fired because they introduced gender fluidity into the classroom. But in more recent years, the conversation is being held much closer to home. The reality is that the rates of uh, LGBTQ plus in the Gen Z generation, which is the the age group that's roughly 11 to 26, is nearly 20% at this time with those who identify with that perspective. That is double the rate of millennials. So we see the the rate of embracing this this worldview is is growing quickly in younger adults. So for many of us who have kids in in that generation, we are faced with this ideology on a regular basis through mainstream media, through schools and through teaching, through talking with your students who maybe even at this point are asking questions about what does it mean to be a man or a woman. For you that are grandparents... And you have your kids, your grandkids over at your house, and you're watching television shows, and you have to talk with them about what do these things mean that are being taught in these these programs. It moves so far beyond the theoretical what-ifs to a very personal level as it affects you and the people that you love. Now, as we start today, I want to give us a passage of Scripture that's going to kind of give us our, our guiding principles as we think about how to embrace or in, engage in this conversation. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is where Peter writes, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's what we are about, right? How do we honor Christ as Lord in our lives? And how are we prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you? And at the same time, how do we do that with gentleness and respect? You see, for believers, we need to be able to engage our culture from a perspective that says Christ is Lord, and we want our lives to be submitted to his authority, our answers to be submitted to his authority, our worldview to be submitted to his authority. And at the same time, we want to be able to answer that in a way that honors Christ. Because for so many people, they're not even willing to engage the conversation. They want to be silent and hope nobody ever asks them. And then you also know people that are more than willing to engage the conversation, and they, they engage it in such a way that may be harsh and unkind, maybe off-putting to those who hear. So today we're going to look at God's Word. We're going to study it together, and we're going to see what He says to us about His pattern for the world. Let's pray together, and then I want you to meet me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in the beginning, and we're going to work our way all the way through the end of the maps in the back of the Bible. Uh, and we're going to spend together today... Looking at God's word, would you pray with me today? Father, we thank you for, for this day. It is your day. It's the day that you have made. Pray, Lord, that we will be rejoicing in it now. I pray that as we look at your word, as we study it, you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would work in our hearts to confirm in us your truth, to confirm in us truth, and then to confirm in us a way in which we can talk to people about challenging issues in our day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you would meet me in Genesis Chapter one, the first thing that we are going to look at today, the first thing that we are going to see as it relates to this issue is that we're going to spend time focusing on God's pattern. What is God's pattern in creation as it relates to gender and sexuality? Because the reality is that we are made by God and we are made for God. So as we begin to wrap our minds around gender and sexuality, we must begin where humanity begins. We must begin where the creator created people. It's in the garden when God created man and woman. Notice what we see in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We can't pass by this word created. It's a vital word for us because we understand that people have been created by God. We're not the products of a cosmic soup. We're not the the products of an accident or a long evolutionary process. God made us, which means that we are creatures that are dependent on him for our identity and our direction in life. Not only are we created by God, these passages show us that we are created in his image. That means that we are to reflect his character and attributes to a watching world. So as the world looks at people, they are to see some reflection of who God is in this world we've been given a unique and special relationship with the creator no other creature has this relationship he's given us minds to think and to reason he's given us emotions to feel with and wills to make decisions we're spiritual beings that enable us to know and worship him so as we even think about our our composition as people we are embodied creations we are embodied creatures not only did God make us, not made by God, we are made for God. Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter one. It says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, us included, were created through him and for him. We are made for God's good pleasure. You see, this is, too important for us to pass by, to skip through this creation account, to skip through this narrative, because it helps us to see our identity, our purpose, and the authority that is over us. That is God. God is the one who is in authority. You see, every person as an image bearer of God possesses value and dignity, not because of anything that they do, but because of who they are as created in the image Of God. But not only that, we see the direction that our lives should take is that of honoring God. That's how God created humanity. So first we see that God is the creator. We are created by him. We are created for him. But that's not all we see in Genesis chapter one and two. As we look at this passage, we are to see that God presents a positive message to us about gender and sexuality. It's a positive message that God presents to us. It doesn't begin with a command of things not to do. It's a positive picture of God, how God patterned humanity. We notice first that God has given us a pattern for gender and sexuality, for sex and gender. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see God's pattern. Is that there are two distinct, distinct forms of humanity, male and And female. You see, God blueprinted each one of us, sex and all, in our mother's womb. Our very DNA shows that in every cell of our bodies, females have two X chromosomes, males have an XY chromosome. Traditionally, these biological markers have gone by the interchangeable terms of sex and gender, but in today's culture, these two realities are being separated. While sex is often referred to biological realities, gender is no longer attached to that in our culture. Gender is what is referred to as the feelings or the cultural experience of being male or female. In this view, gender identity is one's internal sense of whether a male or a female, both or neither. It's tied to the soul and psychological while sex is tied to the body and is physical. This is the, the world that we live in. Male and female, though, according to the Bible, aren't artificial categories that we can separate in our lives. God created his image bearers as gendered people. The differences reflect God's creative design on our lives. They are fixed in absolute categories that God describes for us in his word. So when speaking of male, God is talking about binary, genetic, physical characteristics which make a person a man. The same is true for women. There are binary, genetic, physical characteristics that make a female a woman. You see, the Bible believes in the organic unity of biological sex and gender identity. They are one in the same. Another way to say this for us is that our bodies tell the truth about who we are. Our bodies tell the truth about who we are. Not only is sex and gender fixed and binary from God's perspective, God has a positive pattern for relational and sexual expression. We see He's got a pattern for expression of sexuality. In Genesis 1 it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living, thing, every living thing that moves on the earth. When we continue on in this passage, we see in, in chapter two, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. After he went through the whole list of animals, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, Took one of his ribs and closed it up in his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. See, God's pattern for human flourishing and sexual expression is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Notice in this passage that it was God's design, it wasn't Adam's intention. He didn't go looking for this, it was God who brought Eve to Adam. In this context and in this context alone, God gives direction to be fruitful and to multiply to enter into a one-flesh union. God's pattern, therefore, is a heterosexual, monogamous, covenant relationship for a lifetime. So if you had to define, if you had to give a a definition for biblical picture of marriage, it's the uniting of one naturally-born man and one naturally-born woman, and only one man and only one woman, in a covenant commitment for a lifetime. You may say, well, Jesus is our authority on this. Certainly, if we think about the New Testament, did Jesus ever talk about gender and sexuality in negative terms or in challenging terms? We only see him affirming what we see from the beginning. Notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's pattern for gender and sexuality. But when we look at the world, we notice that this is not the world that we are living in. This is not what is embraced in our culture. And sadly, more often times than not, it is being not embraced in our churches. You see this pattern, not being embraced as truth and lived out in accordance with that. We move to next in this picture is that humanity has a problem. Humanity has a problem because paradise didn't stay this way for long. The story takes a pretty dramatic turn just three chapters into the Bible. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, we're introduced to this new character, this serpent who appears and begins to question people about God's character, to question them about God's rule. Casting doubt upon him as a good creator that has their best in mind. Painting him more as a person who just wants to be a killjoy. Somebody that just wants to rule over them and not just be control over their lives. You see in verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. As the serpent introduces this to the woman, he's offering her a pathway of her own choosing. One that promised a new identity for her. One that promised a new perspective on life filled with promise and enlightenment for her. We see this continues in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In reality, when we look at this, it doesn't seem like the actions of a hardened rebel, does it? Well, listen, it doesn't seem like she's just being obstinate and angry at God. No, it seems like someone who just saw themselves as the masters of themselves. I can make the decisions that are best for me. People who knew what was best for them, who embraced the opportunity to assume the authoritative word in their own lives. They were going to assume the direction for their own lives. You can't trust God with your life. You trust yourself. That's the whisper of the serpent in the ear. And the humanity, the humans, Adam and Eve, said, yes, that's the direction that we'll go. We will be the masters of our own fate. We will be the ones that are in charge of our own lives. And it's from this point on that the trajectory of humanity and the world were set on a course for what one author describes as a death spiral. You can see it all around us. uh, Immeasurable personal, social, and natural devastation. The Bible helps us to see that the effects of Adam and Eve's choices touch every aspect of our lives and every aspect of the created order. Think about what happened next. Work, which was enjoyable, Challenging but fulfilling. After the fall became a place of thorns and thistles where you would work and work and work and maybe never see any produce, never see any fruit. We experience natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, fires, all results of a world touched by the effects of sin. You know this in the reality of your own bodies. People Fail. We're frail people. Our bodies break down. People experience the brokenness of the world. People experience the effects of sin when, they, when their bodies are racked with cancer. Whenever they have heart disease, whenever there's disordered thinking, disordered emotions and desires, physical disabilities, and the ultimate consequence, the ultimate reality of sin's effect in the world is death. You see, the fall has had a profound effect on people apart from any sinful choices that we make. This is the reality of what we live in. This is, a, this is our, our lives. But we also see in the relation to gender and sexuality, the effects of the fall. How it disorders God's pattern. It says my mind and my body don't match. I may have a female body, but my mind says that I'm a male. This is called gender dysphoria in our culture. Or related to attraction. My attraction doesn't match. Rather than be attracted to the opposite sex, I'm attracted to someone of the same sex. This is called same-sex attraction. We readily acknowledge that the effects of the fall are all around us. We see it each and every day of our lives. We feel it each and every day of our lives. But the most challenging admission is that the effects of the fall are not just what happens outside of us, but they are profound realities within us. From birth, we want to be God. We want to be the ones who define the parameters. We want to be the ones who make the rules. We don't want anybody outside of us to tell us what to do. You See, reality is that we have a fundamental authority problem in our lives from birth. And I can prove it to you. How many of you parents have ever had to teach your child how to throw a fit when they didn't get what they wanted? I mean, like, how many of you had to say, all right, now, listen, I'm gonna tell you to do something. And whenever you don't wanna do that, here's what you do. You arch your back, you lean really far back, You take in a really big breath, and then you go for it. How many of you ever had to teach your child that? None of us, because it's ingrained in who we are as people. We want to be our own authority. We don't want people or anybody else, for that matter, to tell us what to do. We want, at every turn, to disconnect as people from our relationship as created beings who derive their identity and the direction of their activity from a creator. We want to be boss. And at the same time, we can never get away from the reality that we are created beings. As much as we wanna run the other way, we are all still in the reality that we are created beings. There's a pattern that God has for humanity. This is vital for us. As we think about gender and sexuality, but really every kind of affliction and disorder that we engage with. We are created and we are broken at the same time. This is the reality that each one of us lives with each and every day. And as we see this, what I want us to hear clearly here is this. We're not saying that anyone who experiences same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is walking in sin. The experience of Disordered thinking, the experience of being outside of in our own thinking and the brokenness of our world is not sin. What we are saying is that to take the step from struggling with it, from seeking God's pattern in our lives and pursuing and embracing that as our lifestyle and our life is sin. To embracing that is sin. It's no surprise that when we observe what the fall has caused, how does cause disordered thinking that since the fall of humanity wants to be its own authority that we see sinful pursuits abounding? I know we are looking to address gender and sexuality, but I also want to see that we are all in this reality together. I don't want us to look at particular categories of sin and say they're, they're so much worse than what I struggle with because Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at this list, we are all in there somewhere. None of us in this room escape this list. We might not all be in the same place, but we are all in there. It's important for us to see that Paul isn't picking on one expression of sexuality or even two. No, Paul is helping us to see that in relation to sexuality, anyone that misses God's pattern is on the list and is sin. See, in our brokenness, though, we look for answers. We, We want to alleviate the dissonance we feel, to get to answers related to how I can be happy. How do I, how do I have these struggles, these questions, these feelings, and what do, I, what do I do with them? See, our struggles are looking for an answer. We're looking for an answer, and our culture is quick to give us one. Our culture says you weren't created. Our culture says you have the ability to decide, and as one exhibit puts it, you can be self made. You can decide. You can be the master of your own fate. You can decide what you want to be, when you want to be it, how you want to be it. You may have heard it said in these ways, you do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Be yourself. You see, within this framework, the highest virtue is to express yourself. The most basic abuse is to deny who you feel that you are. This mantra is maybe best articulated. I found this quote where the, the writer says, we're human beings, a transgender activists, and this is a human life. This is a reality for us. And all that we ask for is acceptance and validation for what we say that we are. It's a basic human right. As if the basic human right is to define what I am, rather than to take my direction from the creator who has a pattern for my life. And for people who are seeking to be happy, for people who are seeking identity or seeking inclusion, TikTok and other social media platforms open a world where embracing this reality finds you celebration, community, our schools, our TV, everything is saying the same thing. You see, all of us want to be included. All of us want to be loved. We want to be happy. What I want to say to any of you, if you're here struggling with this personally, or if you know someone who is, you know this is the cry of your heart. And there's a belief that embracing sexual immorality or going back to the list, lying or homosexuality or transgenderism or any other distortion of God's good plan would deliver on the promise of freedom and joy that we all seek. But the Bible tells us that these are false promises, that these promises can never be fulfilled apart from following God's plan. We see how this works out even in Genesis. Notice what happens to Adam and Eve. After they took the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, embracing a desire that is at odds with the creator's design will never bring ultimate happiness will never bring ultimate happiness. Rather than experiencing the freedom that they thought that they would experience, they only experience shame and disappointment. So we've seen in scripture that God has a pattern for us. We've seen that humanity has a problem, which brings us to the reality that in the gospel, there is a promise which will be made good on. There's a promise in the gospel. The promise is, new creation. You see, Jesus's mission wasn't simply to die so that your sins could be forgiven. You could live the rest of your life how you want to, and then go to heaven. No, for all those who put their faith in Christ, the Bible says that God's plan is that you become a new creation, that you are a new creature in Christ. Notice what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This means that God gives you a new identity, an identity that isn't sealed by your old life or your old desires. Let's look back again at first Corinthians chapter six. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Seems like a pretty despairing situation, doesn't it? We read this, it seems despairing. And it would be if Paul stopped there. But then he brings such a hopeful message. In verse 11, he says this. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, our culture says that your identity is sealed. If you are an alcoholic, you will always be an alcoholic. If you have a problem with stealing, you'll always be a kleptomaniac. God says, the believer, that's who you were. It's not who you are. Change is possible. The sin that you embraced once doesn't define you anymore. And praise God that our identities are made new in Christ. They are not viewed through what we used to be, but they are viewed through the finished work of Christ. The reality is that we are new people. Being new, however, doesn't mean that all those things go away, all those challenges and struggles, all those thoughts and desires go away. And it may be true for a person who struggles with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction they may, to, may continue to experience that throughout their whole lives. It may be like what people describe as a battle that rages inside of them between their mind and their body. But this isn't a unique struggle. Does that sound like anything else that you as a believer experience? You know what it means to have a war going on within you. You know what it means to fight against the flesh. You know what it means to love the things that God hates and hate the things that God loves. So in a very real sense, the person who is struggling with gender identity, the person who is struggling with drunkenness, the person who is struggling with envy or sexual immorality or homosexuality are all in the same boat. In fact, we are all here struggling internally to fight against things in our lives. And the question may come, are you telling me that following Jesus means that I have to deny something that I feel? I would submit to you that that is the basic expectation of every believer. Whenever we come to Christ at the most basic level to confess Jesus is Lord, acknowledges that my life is not my own any longer, that my desires, the purpose of my life, the direction of my life, the thoughts of my life are now submitted to the authority and direction of the word of God. We see this in Romans chapter 12. Paul says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. He tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is for all of life. In the case of gender dysphoria, when the world says, listen to Your mind and change your body. Scripture teaches us embrace the body that you've been given and allow God to change your mind. For a culture that says, love is love, should be able to marry whoever I feel like marrying. Scripture says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Put on in your mind truth. Now we've seen the pattern, the problem, and the promise of the gospel that we can be new creations. Now let's take just a few moments and consider maybe the questions that you want to think about. What is our practice as a church? What should the church do? Now I say the practice of church because we can't control culture. Right? Culture is, is going to go the way that culture goes, but we do have a responsibility as the church. These are the questions that we are asking whenever a co-worker invites us to a pride event, or to be an ally for LGBTQ plus people, or our child comes home and says, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand. My body feels different than what my mind is telling. How do I respond to those situations? How do I respond to people in those times? Short disclaimer, I can't answer all the questions that you may have. Any questions that you may have, I might not be able to answer them, but what today uh, is to be a general application for how we can how we can begin conversations and be guided through this. Because it's not only important for our position to be defined by the word of God, but our responses to be governed by the word of God. So for the believer, what can we do? How can we grow? First, don't be surprised by sin. Don't be surprised by sin. In our culture, non-Christian people will act like non-Christians. Sin is a reality for all of us. You have walked in sin. Other people walk in sin. Do not be surprised by sin. Second, see people, all people, through the hope-filled lens of the gospel. Oftentimes, we find sins that we are not involved in. We think that they're more heinous than the ones that we are involved in. So it's easy for us to look at people who sin differently than we do with disdain or disgust. God's word tells us that people, no matter what their sin struggle is, are no farther from being saved than you were when God saved you. They're no further from God's grace than you were when God saved you. If God can save you, he can save anybody. He can transform anybody. If you think about your life before Christ, there were probably people that said, there is no way, That God could save that person. It's gonna take a miracle. In reality, every person that comes to faith in Christ is a miracle. And we have the opportunity to see people through the hope filled lens of the gospel to say, God can change anybody's heart. God can change anybody's mind. God can put anybody in a new direction. Third, as believers, we are to put to death sin in our lives and to put on righteousness. As Christians, we must live consistent lives of righteousness. Our relationships must be above reproach. As husbands and wives, we should model the gospel in our culture so that whenever people want to attack what Christianity believes about marriage and about gender, they can look and say their marriages are a model of what they say it should be. Their lives represent faithfully what they are telling us. Christian marriage is about. We are to model putting to death sin and putting on righteousness in our own lives. Fourth, we are to recognize that there is truly suffering present. There is a real struggle going on. It's not a made-up struggle. It's a real struggle. So if you are interacting with someone who is struggling with or is identifying uh, in a transgender way or is embraced or is considering same-sex attraction, ask questions, get to know the person, get to know their struggle because you know the same struggle and what it means to be at war within yourself. So you have at least a compassionate lens by which you can approach walking with them in truth. Fifth, preach Christ. Transgender, your transgender coworker, your same-sex attracted coworker, their greatest need is not to be converted to embracing God's design for gender and sexuality. That's not their greatest need. It's Christ. Their acceptance of their gender doesn't make them any closer to surrendering Christ than they are right now. This is the beauty of Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. If you heard anything about her, this is how the pastor that she walked with encouraged her, walked with her, brought her into his home and had meals with their family not even identifying the areas that she was struggling with helping her to see the biblical picture of us as humanity and our fallenness and our need for a redeemer he started with Christ he finished with Christ because as we see people come to faith in Christ we recognize that fundamentally that means that we submit our lives our identities our attractions and all to his authority sixth speak and live with clarity speak and live with clarity. We could ask the question in communicating: Do we speak truth with people? This guards us against becoming silent. We have the opportunity and the direction to speak with clarity. The questions become: What does my presence communicate in this interaction? If I'm invited to a particular, to attend a particular thing, what does my presence communicate? Am I speaking? in a way that is consistent with what I believe the Bible teaches. We also see that we are to speak and live with charity. Speak and live with charity. You see, we can't, be, we can't afford to be half right in the speaking and speaking with charity and speaking with clarity. Because to be half right on this will be all wrong. If we just speak with clarity and we just give truth, 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 but there's no compassion, there's no love, there's no walking with and bearing with and helping understand someone's struggle, then we miss the opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel. Anger, frustration, self-righteousness are all hindrances to our witness. We must guard our conversation in such a way that we do not make fun of, we do not speak derogatorily, we do not speak in a way that harms people. We are to speak the truth in love. And we are to show love in our interactions. We are to show love by going above and beyond to care for people. A few notes for us as parents. Notes for us as parents. Parents, practice patience. Practice patience. You say, what does that mean? If your child comes home and starts sharing with you struggles that they're going through, be patient. Be patient. Walk with them through the trial and struggle that they're involved in. Ask questions. Let them know that you are there for them. Continue to point them to the truth of the gospel. Encourage them to set their minds on Christ. Speak and treat them with patience. A second one. Teach that stereotypes don't define gender. See, we've taken personal preferences and attached a gender to them. For instance, a young man who is into fishing, hunting, carpentry, and sports, but enjoys reading music and cooking, somebody might say, that's not very masculine. Well, how does the Bible define masculinity? How does the Bible teach us about masculinity? You see, gender stereotypes aren't gender identity because so many things in our culture change from decade to decade. I'm going to show you just a quick instance of that. In 1918 the ladies' home journal, we see this. Pink, being a more decided and strong color, is more suitable for boys, while blue, which is more delicate and dinky, is prettier for a girl. Now, in 1918, pink was masculine, blue was feminine. In our culture, we see that differently, right? You think about how genders are identified with colors They change over the course of time. So we can't attach stereotypes to identity. We wanna take our students, our kids to the Bible and say, what does it say about masculinity? What does it say about, about love and about humility? What does it say about compassion? What does it say about gentleness for femininity? What does it say about strength? What does it say about character? What does it say about what it means to be a man and a woman? And then help our students live out their unique personality and apply it faithfully with what scripture teaches now this morning i know that we've gone through this and it's been kind of a blur maybe for you hopefully we've been able to to see god's pattern our problem the promise of the gospel and how we can practice this in our lives for us to embrace god's design and to minister the gospel in a way minister the gospel in such a way that it points people to the redemptive power of Christ. And if today you say, I want to learn more about this, I want to read some more. A couple of books that have been helpful uh, over the course of the last week, um, here's a few of them if you want to snap a shot of those. Uh, Those are some helpful books. One, uh, A Strange New World helps us see kind of how we've got to where we are. And the others are some ways in which we can see these uh, categories and walk through these in our own lives. I would commend these resources to you. Now we're going to close our time in prayer and then you can go in the grace and peace of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for today and for your word that does speak to us that we see your pattern, that we see that we have a problem and that you have a great future in Christ. There's promises for us and I pray that you would help us to live in light of those personally and we'll be able to share those in the world that you have entrusted us to live within. I pray for those that are here that may be walking through this. that you grant them grace? that you would be with them and strengthen them. You would help us to be faithful in ministering to those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.